This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. This is episode 156, and today I sat down with Courtney Boyd-Myers, the founder and CEO of Akua. Akua creates delicious, nutritious foods that can feed the planet sustainably while reversing climate change, starting with the world's first burger created from ocean-farmed kelp, mushrooms, and superfoods. Courtney shares her story from growing up in Connecticut with dreams of becoming a marine biologist to working as a journalist for Forbes, where she was exposed to entrepreneurship and was the first to write about Warby Parker, to working at General Assembly and Summit, where she stumbled upon a kelp farm in Utah, which reignited her passion for seaweed and inspired her to start Akua. We talk about co-founder failures, how she originally launched the business with jerky, and why she pivoted to burgers instead. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and you can check us out online at stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Courtney. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you on the show today and hear your story in building Akua. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So let's get started. Let's dive in. Where are you from originally? I want to start with your background, your childhood. What was it like growing up? I grew up in Connecticut, which was very idyllic and grew up not too far from the beach. Westport, Connecticut was our closest beach. I remember as a little kid, summers were everything and running into the ocean and just coming out covered in seaweed. And I always used to start just like eating it and sticking it in my mouth. You were eating seaweed like as a kid out of the ocean like that? Totally. Because in my mind, I was Ariel in The Little Mermaid. <laughs> and I thought seaweed would make me a mermaid. That's hilarious. <laughs> You're obsessed with The Little Mermaid. That's so funny. Did you have like the sheets and the whole thing like at your house? I mean, I can still to this day sing every song in that movie. And I had like the whole thing choreographed as a kid. I had bathing suits, you know, I've dyed my hair red several times. It's a deep. You're basically half mermaid. That is the goal for sure. (laughs) If I could live in the bathtub these days, I would. (laughs) That's so funny. So you kind of grew up in the water. You love the water, it sounds like. And... So what other things were you into as a kid? Like, did did you have any siblings? What did your parents do? My dad was one of the big food marketers in the 1980s. He helped develop the Burger King Kids Club. 
he worked on Chester the Cheeto guy. He worked at Pepsi, did a bunch of commercials with Michael Jackson. So I saw him kind of coming up in that world of big food marketing. My mom is a advocate for PETA and has always had like 15 pets and was a science teacher and worked in the school systems to kind of keep a close eye on us and us, meaning me and my little brother, Chris, who is actually working for Akua in a, in a very part-time way. He helps run our Google ads today. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Family in the business. That's awesome. So it's just you yeah. and your little, little brother growing yeah. up in Connecticut. What about school? Like early days? What did you want? To, other than a mermaid, what did you want to be <laughs> when you grew up? A marine biologist. I thought that, you know, being around seals and whales and just being out in the water would be a really good life. And I also wanted to be like a famous author, a poet, creative writer type. Interesting. Why is that? Where did that come from? My mom read a lot to me growing up. She read the whole J.R.R. Tolkien series, all of C.S. Lewis. I then sort of became pretty obsessed with like sci-fi and fantasy with the Golden Compass series. And I just, yeah, I loved these worlds that were just totally imaginary and made up and created. And I always wanted to do the same. That's awesome. That's really interesting. And so when you look back at your childhood, do you see any type of entrepreneurial things that you did that kind of point to you being an entrepreneur as an adult? You know, I did the whole lemonade stand thing, like I think most kids did. I would say my parents didn't really expose me to the idea of starting a business. I became exposed to that much later in life. I think that's a little bit of a regret. You know, I, I think that I see other entrepreneurs today whose parents were entrepreneurs, and I think that gives them a really nice leg up. I was brought up in a world where my mom was a teacher and my dad was in marketing, and those, those felt like pretty cookie-cutter jobs looking back. Interesting. Yeah. It's, there have been a lot of founders on the show that had parents that were building businesses at the time when they were kids and they were heavily part of that process and it inspired them or kind of you know created this experience of, hey, this is possible to build my own business as well. I, I'm excited to get to when you were exposed to entrepreneurship, but I guess before we get there, where did you go to college? What did you study in school? Tell us about your early couple days and your first jobs. Yeah. I mean, even in high school, I remember sitting in a class once and having a teacher tell us something along the lines of like, well, you can either go into like accounting or marketing or like, I mean, it was so boring and college really didn't deliver a whole lot more. Unfortunately, I, I went to a, a big state school in Virginia called James Madison University. I chose it because, you know, I applied to like 15 schools. I got into most of them and I wanted to go where my friends were. And this older boy that I had a crush on told me that if I went to James Madison, he would take me to a Dave Matthews Band concert. Dave and Matthews like, Band. <laughs> oh my God. We're from the same era. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like everything in high school. Okay. Enrolled and accepted. And see you in uh, August. That's hilarious. So yeah, in college, I studied English literature, creative writing, philosophy, I, again, was was very much pursuing that that writer's track. thought I wanted to be a professor. You know, I've always felt really comfortable in like a 
educational environment and and found it really romantic you know those like walking down those like dark oak hallways and kind of loving sitting in libraries you know I I miss it to this day that creativity it's so funny that you find that really interesting at first thing I think about when I think about a library is Ghostbusters and how there's it's like fully haunted oh my god <laughs> it's like I... one of the scariest places on the planet it's like an empty quiet library that's old no okay <laughs> oh my god I love so libraries I'm so at peace in a library. And even in college, I remember talking to my dad and and he said this kind of very bad piece of advice to me. Sorry, I love my dad. But he said, once you get out of school, you're basically looking at a triangle filled with doors. And in the beginning, you have all of these doors that are open to you. But once you go through one door, the more you move up your career ladder, there's less doors that are open to you to move through. So if you choose marketing or PR, you know, as one door to go through, you can't just go be a doctor and you can't just go do this. And to a certain extent, that's true. I mean, I I think being a doctor is very hard to just jump into, thankfully. But I went through the tech start, well, we can get into it, but, you know, I've gone from journalism to tech startups to food, which I don't necessarily think was as easy to do in our parents' generation. And I think it's, for many reasons, a lot easier to do now, which is great. Yeah. I mean, that was advice, obviously, that he probably wishes he had gotten or just kind of his experience probably in the working world. Mm -hmm. And so he's giving you advice the best way he knows how. And it's like just not applying to, (laughs) you know. So much has changed in in those couple decades, most of which is the internet. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah. Which is you know, I was talking about this. My sister and my mom just came to visit for my son's birthday. We were just talking about how I think that our generation was like the first, obviously, first generation growing up with the internet. And our parents, there's it's like such a big difference. And I feel like my mom, you know, my family looks at my sister and I's life. We live away from home. And it's like, that was just not a normal thing to do because the access to the internet and traveling and being able to go and fly so easily wasn't that easy back in the day. It was expensive. There's just so many barriers to, to travel and to live elsewhere. And so... It's just interesting, this dynamic. I don't know if you feel this too, where like maybe your parents, I don't know if they've moved around at all. My parents haven't. And it's like Mm -hmm. my sister and I have a lot and we're not home. We're not in Delaware anymore. And it's it's tough, right? Because I think you grow up, we half of our life, like growing up as little kids, you just think that you're just going to be around family all the time. And then you grow up, you have the internet and you're like, oh, wait, I want to be in New York. I want to be in LA. I want to (laughs) be... abroad. I want to go over these places. And the parents are like, wait, what's happening? (laughs) Why do they want to go? I feel that hard and it's hard to keep up. And there's real positives and negatives to that. You know, you and I are both moms and not being close to our moms and our, you know, having those grandparents around makes raising children a lot harder. But on the flip side, I don't want to be living in Connecticut. You don't want to be living in Delaware. Right. You know, we've gone and, and forged our careers through, through right. pathways that are mostly lead through urban communities, you know? Yes. And so, yep, trade-offs. <laughs> trade-offs, yes. And I guess my point was, I think we're the first generation to feel that. Yes. And like, if I hear that sound of the, remember you used to go log on an AOL and come back 20 minutes later and it would still be like dialing up and be like, <laughs> right the dial of like noise. <laughs> yeah, no, they're just trying to explain to our kids in 10 years like how long it took to get on the internet it's gonna blow their minds <laughs> and the funny noises they're gonna be like what 
This early? You used to have a phone plugged into the wall? You know, it's hilarious. Car phones. Remember car phones? (laughs) Yep. So you had a first few jobs. I know you had many different jobs. You were interning at Forbes magazine. You've done a few things in, in sales. I would love to kind of hear what those first few jobs were and what you learned from them that you've kind of taken into your role as CEO and founder of your your business. Yep. I had kind of like three separate career tracks prior to starting Akua, one of which was I graduated college and did become a writer. I was a journalist for a long time. And I had so much fun interviewing entrepreneurs and hearing their stories. And that is where I got the exposure to entrepreneurship. It was after I graduated college. It was when I was at Forbes magazine. I switched my beat from finance because in 2009, finance was a terrible thing to write about. The world was just crumbling around us. And I didn't want to write about Bernie Madoff and how many poor people he'd taken their money from. And so I started writing about robots and I remember emailing, you know, the founder of like iRobot who did the Roomba and, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of figuring out how these people started these businesses, scaled them. And I ended up leaving Forbes, becoming a freelance journalist for a couple different publications and being the first journalist to write about Warby Parker, the first journalist to write about Instagram and interviewing Neil Blumenthal on starting that company out of, you know, Wharton Business School and interviewing Kevin Systrom about starting Instagram and selling it, you know, one year later to Facebook. Like these were just super inspiring stories. And eventually yeah. I got the itch. I, I needed to know what it was like working for a startup and being on the other side, even if it meant leaving my career in journalism. And so I moved to a company called General Assembly, which years later sold for almost half a billion dollars. And basically what we did there is we invented whole new ways to get education around how to be an entrepreneur, because it was something that was like sorely lacking growing up. And things like, how do you learn product development? How do you learn internet marketing? I helped the company launch into the UK and Europe, which is how I got over there and started running around London and Berlin and, and whatnot. Third kind of phase of my career before Akua was I got married to this English guy. I was living in London and it didn't work out. We broke up. And then I met this beautiful French man who's now my husband. I got this call from this team that I'd been a part of this community called Summit for a long time as an attendee. And I said, and they said, you know, we just bought a mountain in Utah. Do you want to come out and live in Utah and like help us build this mountain town? And so I said, you know, obviously, and I I moved to Utah with Summit and we built these amazing event series that still exist today. Um, Summit at Sea is one of them. It's happening next month. And I met really ridiculously crazy cool people, you know, back in my entrepreneurship sponge mode where I was surrounded by people who now were building businesses to address climate change, who were building businesses to address human health. A couple of those pivotal people were Taro, I can never pronounce his last name, Isokapala, I think from Four Sigmatic, who built the superfood mushroom business we all know and love. Yes. And then Eric Snyder at the Drawdown Fund. I just became obsessed with this idea that I then wanted to dedicate the rest of my career to addressing human health and environmental health. So that kind of sets the stage for for starting Akua. 
Yeah, I've actually had Taro on the show and he has definitely an amazing story and I can see how that's inspiring to want to yes. do something life-changing. Amazing. And and I obviously having had so many over 150, you know, entrepreneurs on the show and hearing these entrepreneurial stories. Yeah. I've been an entrepreneur before, you know, so this isn't my first exposure to entrepreneurship, but I love connecting with founders and it's always so inspiring and it's one of the reasons I love doing the show is sharing those stories. And it's so cool to hear that you kind of have an interesting experience, but that it actually propelled you into wanting to start your own company. I think that not everybody, I feel like, would feel inspired or like, did you ever feel like they can do it, but maybe I can't? Or did you always feel like if they can do it, I can do it? And it just kept building on itself? I think as a lot of times as founders, we end up telling all the best parts about being a founder. and. Yeah. It's sort of only recently where like being vulnerable as a founder has been seen as okay. So I kind of heard a lot of the highlights reels, especially as a journalist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it a little bit. But it was more, my question was, what is that one thing that I could become so obsessed with that I would want to do it every day? And mm -hmm. I hadn't found that one thing and I think a lot of people talk about like living, you know, in the alignment with your like personal mission for life. Like what's your purpose on this earth? And I didn't, you know, community building definitely is one of those things, but I, yeah, I just felt like I hadn't struck it completely perfectly. But then when I learned about like kelp farming and that kind of hit a nerve, I was like, all right, I definitely could spend the rest of my life trying to convince people to eat seaweed. <laughs> Why did you think that? I'm so curious. Like, what was that moment where you're like, yep, help and see yep. that's, I mean, obviously it started really early with your obsession with Little Mermaid, but I'm just wondering, like, as an adult, having had these different jobs and like, when did the paths cross, right? Like, when was that moment where your background as a journalist, talking to entrepreneurs, that's kind of like fueling and building this passion for building and being an entrepreneur with the passion of the sea and seaweed and all that. When did that collide? What was the moment? Do you remember? Oh, yeah, totally. Pivotal moment, April 2016. I'm working at Summit. I'm living in Utah. A friend comes to visit. He's telling me, hey, I just got this job at a nonprofit. We are basically working with fishermen in the New England communities close to where we grew up together. We're getting them to build kelp farms. And we're doing it for two reasons. One is we're trying to help these fishermen and fisherwomen make a living off of the boats and the buoys that they already have, but a living in a way that is helpful for the ocean, not harmful, like overfishing. Two is this idea of planting kelp in the water, like versus a kelp forest that already exists, but kind of recreating that kelp forest has amazing environmental benefits because the kelp grows through photosynthesis. It's sucking CO2 out of the water as it grows its body mass. So it's, it's really helpful in the context of climate change and in combating acidification. And also, if you think about growing food, most of the things you and I have on a daily basis require a lot of fresh water and dry land and kelp requires neither. So it's, it's really interesting future food in the context of climate change. I was like, well, I've always loved eating seaweed for the health benefits. And now there's all these really cool local economic benefits and, and potentially really powerful environmental benefits. So I just thought, huh, this is really, really interesting. And I went out on a kelp farm and I was sitting on a boat 
and we pulled a piece of kelp out of the water. You know, we've got some photos of this and I just ate it and I thought, done. This is it. This is what I want to do every day. This is, I'm totally obsessed. And I think it's so weird that as like non-Asian Americans, we like don't eat seaweed on a daily basis. It's so good. And I wanted to figure out a way to get more people eating more kelp for so many reasons, health, environment, and, you know, supporting our farmers. It is very much a, an Asian culture food, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And it is interesting to think like, why have we not, you know, as Americans kind of <laughs> eaten more kelp or seaweed, but it hasn't really come in a form. And so how, why did you choose burgers? Like when you took that bite and you're like, yeah, this is it. Were you just thinking you're going to serve up seaweed like that on a plate just <laughs> plain, you know? Yeah. Because I don't think most people would take it out of the water and just like gnaw on it like you did. So I'm curious, what was the format that you felt would be best to share the seaweed with the world? Like, did you have that moment at the same time or did that come later? So we sort of had this idea that well, what if we can replace the most unsustainable way to make food, which I always believed was factory farming. You know, I was raised by a mom who was like a big PETA supporter. And I was also raised by a dad who like created Burger King Kids Club. And so mm. I saw the burger as kind of this symbol of the American food system. And it comes from factory farm cows, which are this like symbol of horrible treatment of animals and environmental destruction. And so I thought, well, what if we can create like a burger that like rises up through that and can become a symbol of powerful regenerative agriculture and powerful human health? And so, yeah, that was kind of the thinking. It was just like going in this opposite direction from like the way burgers have been created to date. We also, through where I work at Summit, always believed that like the kitchen table was the greatest piece of connective technology ever invented. And so to bring people together over a meal, like a kelp burger, and then to be able to sort of use that as a jumping off point to talk about our food choices, our food systems, I just thought was going to be like a, a really fun way to approach it. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, -E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. If your dad was a marketer for Burger King and your mom was part of PETA, how did that work at home? Like, was this at the same time or did she like do the PETA thing after he left? Or how does that work? Because that's like a, a serious difference in values, I'd say. Yeah. My parents are very Christian and like that's their shared value system oh. around a lot of that, to be fair. Yeah. But 
you know, when it came to my dad's job at Burger King, it was a job that put food on the table Mm. and it wasn't necessarily him. But still to Mm. this day, he eats beef a lot, especially in the summer. Like that's like his, what he was raised on. And my mom has always been one of those people that's just like live and let live. And she is like the most content, sometimes complacent, happy person in her own rhythm and never, ever goes out of her way to like tell other people what they're doing is wrong necessarily, unless she sees someone like abusing their pets on the street. Like that's, she's definitely called the cops on neighbors before for like, (laughs) just like pulling the dog on the leash too hard. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) A little crazy. But when it comes to like, you know, your personal eating and stuff like that, like she's, yeah, she's, she's a pretty chill woman. I'm not even part of PETA. And if I see someone trying to pull or do something minorly aggressive, I'm like staring at them. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like bad sometimes though, because there's a lot of neighbors that don't really like my mom. (laughs) It's all right. We love you, mom. I love what you're doing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. More people like you who's going to speak up. Defending the puppies, all of them. (laughs) Yes, yes. Defending the voiceless. Okay. So, Let's see. I want to see like when you first started your company, when did you decide to make this? Like you had the experience in the boat, but when were you really like, I'm forming the company, this is what I'm doing. And what kind of ignited that whole journey and kind of talk to us about your your whole like launch? We were on that boat in April 2016 and we incorporated the business on January 1st, 2017. So it was like wow. eight months later. Within that eight months, it was just a lot of meeting up in Washington Square Park, talking about the business, you know, dropping off samples of kelp to different chefs, hosting events where we were creating everything from kelp soda to kelpo noodles to kelp chips and just trying different form factors. We had a lot of fun. We came up with kelp jerky as our first product, actually not the kelp burger first, although we did kelp burgers in that first round. But the thinking was like to do something dried and shelf stable would be easier than jumping into frozen logistics on day one. And Mm -hmm. the flip side of that was we were creating a product that was dehydrated, which is like really hard to do and scale. So yeah, it was just honestly a really brutal first two years until like January 2017 was when we started working on scaling the kelp jerky, I think. And it wasn't until April 2019 that we actually sold a bag. So that was call it a little over two years of part-time because we were still working on other projects of trying to figure out the jerky piece. And it was so painful. (laughs) It was like, it was like brutal. I can't believe I I'm still doing this after those first two years. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys started with jerky. That what I'm mean? yes. Wow. Yeah, we don't sell it anymore. We had to disco our own product. That's what and... I'm saying. I'm like, where's the jerky? <laughs> I just see all of the burgers, and that's fascinating. So you started with the jerky. And why did you guys decide to stop doing the jerky and then shift to burgers? So March 2020, we were driving into Anaheim for Expo West with a minivan full of kelp jerky to share with the world. And obviously the world started shutting down during COVID. And we went back to a Mexican restaurant in Venice beach. And we kind of just sat there like, oh my God, what's happening? You know, like people were getting COVID. Expo West had just been canceled. It was like March 2nd or 3rd at this point. A stay at home order hadn't been put into effect yet. And we just kind of decided that like we were getting some really mediocre results in those first 
eight months selling the jerky. It was like getting into really healthy food stores like Erewhon and doing okay. Mm. And we thought this is never going to work at like a Walmart. And so if our goal is to bring help to the people and have like everybody enjoying this new food group, like we had to get to a product that was more delicious one and also easier to make dehydration is miserable process. And Mm -hmm. so we, our co-packer at the time said, well, it would be very easy for us to make burgers. Like let's do burgers. So that was another point. And we started doing the burger recipe. We hosted our, our first kelp burger tasting March 9th. And that night Trump closed the borders And then the story unfolds from there. But it was definitely a a pandemic baby, to say the least, the kelp burger. (laughs) Wow. And it's almost like because of COVID and you were at this Mexican restaurant. And it sounds like you almost had time to reflect a little bit more and kind of question maybe things. Whereas if that didn't happen and you guys went full on to Expo West and shared the jerky and stuff, it may have been something you learned a lot later down the road, spent too much money on it. Like who knows what could have happened if you kept going down the jerky path for a lot longer. A thousand percent. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful that happened in some ways because we got a full refund on on Expo West. You know, we even got some like credit for, you know, they they were sort of honoring quite a few payments that were made. And we still sold the jerky during the pandemic. I mean, that was definitely interesting because a lot of people started buying it, but we ultimately made the decision to kill the product after we spent a lot of money reformulating it. So we spent about $30,000 with a food scientist over a couple months actively reformulating the, the kelp jerky. I remember putting the samples out and people on my team, everyone was like, this is great. You should definitely launch with it. Like investors of ours were like, I love it. And then I remember there was these two women on our team they're from Sir Kensington's. And I said to them after a team retreat, do you want to take the kelp jerky samples on the plane with you, you know, just as a snack? And they said, oh, we're okay. Like, see you later. And I thought, oh, we're not, we're not, we're not bringing this product to market. Like, absolutely not. If you're not taking a free snack on a plane. Like, you think everybody was probably being a little too nice with you, it sounds like. Totally. And we learned that with the jerky in person. First of all, I, I don't think in-person tastings are helpful. I think a lot of people do these like focus groups. And if the founder's in the room, I just think throw out the results. I agree with you. Yeah. Especially because when we were doing jerky tastings, we were also getting people drunk at the same time. But like, that was just... (laughs) I mean, it's hard, right? Because no one wants to be like, your baby's ugly. You know, like no one wants to be that person to be that honest. And that's what the founder needs to hear but no one wants to say it because they know how hard it is and how much money it takes to create that product. And so then you're right. You're in this room of people that are just like, yeah, it's good. (laughs) Want to take it home? No, I'm good. I'm full. (laughs) Right. uh, That was really smart. You saw that sign. (laughs) Yeah. And with the kelp burger, as we head into the pandemic, we basically over six months, we hosted something called the kelp beta burger club. And we had a thousand customers over six months try the burger. We sent out these beautiful type forms where we were collecting vast amounts of data, like how much would you pay for it? How did you cook it? What kind of box do you want it in? Where do you shop? And we got like just these crazy data sets. And the kelp burger, after like six months, 
9.6 rating out of 10. Nine out of 10 people said it was the best vegan burger they've ever had. And that was data that was not sort of impacted by being there in person or having alcohol or anything like that. You could show it to investors, you know? And so that felt really good. Was it like an anonymous survey? They dropped their emails because we offered a discount code, which does create some bias, but we typically offer something for filling out a form. Certainly did not delay people from telling us they they didn't like things about it in those early days. So yeah, it wasn't completely anonymized, but close to And how did you get that group of people together? How many were there that you surveyed? And how did you curate that list? So they were our existing customers. Mm. One of the things that's great about being an online business from day one is we've got a really big customer base online so we can test and trial products. Overnight shipping on products is expensive, but putting a product into retail that that hasn't hit product market fit is even more expensive. So we continue to trial new flavors and products with our our customers. And it's a blast. You know, we've got about 40,000 people on our mailing list, probably a quarter of that on our text message threads. So yeah, we've been really lucky to build an Akua community that's really strong. That's awesome. And so what about fundraising? Talk to us about fundraising. How much have you raised so far? And what have some of the challenges been in your fundraising process? So we have raised about 5 million bucks so far. 1 million of that was through an equity crowdfunding campaign that we did in 2021 that we had tons of success with. We raised the max amount. amount. We raised from 2,000 investors. That was to launch the Kelpberger. And we are doing that again in about a month. So we're launching a second equity crowdfunding campaign where we can raise up to $600,000. And we are making it all about the SpongeBob collaboration that we're launching in June. I'm really looking forward to it. We are raising privately right now from investors, but it's a really gnarly market out there. I thought that like Q4 2022 was as bad as it was going to get. This SVB meltdown and everything that happened this year, it's even worse. So Mm -hmm. we're turning to equity crowdfunding because I think it's going to be not only helpful for bringing in money, but also really helpful from a marketing perspective. And then we'll do a private fundraise following that and probably our Series A in in early 2024. And so for those tuning in thinking, ah, yeah, I hear you. It's so hard to fundraise right now. You're doing this crowdfunding thing. You did it before. You raised a million bucks. Now you're going out probably for another 600K. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are thinking about using crowdfunding sites? Like, Do you have a platform you recommend? How do you drive traffic to that site to raise money? So I wrote a exhaustive piece called How to Rock a Republic Campaign when I first did it because I was getting introductions to people's aunts and uncles trying to like get my brain for 30 minutes on crowdfunding. And I was like, I can't. Here's a piece. I've given all my tips. If you read it and you still have questions, like I'll then help you. Yeah. So So we're going to have to. Great. We're going to put the link in the (laughs) show notes. So if you're interested in reading it, it's going to be there for you guys to check out. But that's amazing. You wrote that. I mean, you're a writer. So I feel like you're like, I'm just going to (laughs) write. Most people, (laughs) I feel like would not write it all out. But that's excellent that you did that. So we'll have to check it out. Please do. And so we we love the Republic platform. I think that there's other great platforms out there like WeFunder is another good one. We have that online community. We have 
traction in the market. You know, we have a very aspirational business model. It touches on sustainability. And so I think that that's a good mix of things to, to do an equity crowdfund campaign. But anything kind of sexy in any way, like software companies that, you know, are building robot pizza makers or, or whatever that can get people jazzed up. Like if it would do well on Kickstarter, it would probably do well on Republic or any equity crowdfunding platform. I think like what doesn't do well are like pre-market ideas, zero revenue, zero traction, zero community. I think you're going to launch to a pretty flat audience with that formula. Interesting. And you have experience building community before, you know, with the, working mm-hmm. at the summit. What's some advice you have for entrepreneurs that are trying to really build community for their brands? Sure. So I think that age old, the dinner table is the greatest piece of connective technology type of ideas is something that really can't be overdone, just especially post COVID. Like people are craving connection communities. Yeah, yeah. Connection and like people still want to meet new people. Mm-hmm. So if you are like the brand builder and you're doing the work to like bring interesting people literally around the table, I think that's like, no matter what industry you're in or what you're doing, like just the great place to start, especially if you're like learning something new as you and I kind of enter like parenthood and stuff, it's so nice when someone else has just like planned a, a night for you and you can just show up. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're in a mom's group together called Misha. And so, yeah, it's so nice when they just, they have the dinner, you just show up like that. That's fun. You know, just being invited to the dinners can be a lot easier than hosting one, but hosting one is fun too. Hosting dinners is, is my greatest piece of advice, but obviously on the brand side, starting email marketing and text message marketing day one, figuring out a way to to build that online community. There's TikTok and Instagram and someone in our Misha group posted about Lemon 8. And I was like, what's Lemon 8? And it's like this new thing. It's like Pinterest meets TikTok. So yeah, just continuing to build whatever online community you can, whether you sell it online or not. And beyond, you know, fundraising being a challenge, when you look back kind of over the past couple of years and building out the company, What are some of the biggest challenges that you didn't expect? Because it sounds like this is your first company. This is your first time being CEO. You're you're leading and managing a team. What are some of the things that you didn't realize were part of entrepreneurship or that you didn't really, you know, maybe you think other entrepreneurs don't really know either? Yeah. I built and sold an agency. It was very small before this, but agencies are very different models. It's kind of just cash in, cash out. And building a product multi-channel business with multiple supply chains is just extremely complicated. And I and I always tell people to just think about what your strengths are and make sure you are either surrounding yourself or overcompensating for your weaknesses. And what I mean by that is like, I'm a marketer, storyteller, journalist at heart. And so I started spending like way too much time on brand and Instagram and online community building versus knowing that I could operationally like scale this product. I think the hardest part about starting a food company is is making the food at scale. You know, mm. it's just like figuring out how your hogs are going to work making a million burgers a year and more and who's going to make it and how much they're going to charge you per patty and like that all that stuff. I've had to oh, it's been a brutal process like learning all of that over the past couple years and now I'm more comfortable with it but if I had known then what I know now on the operations behind like a food and logistics company I said 
don't know if Akua would be here. <laughs> well, would you have maybe tried to partner with a COO early on? Or like, what is a way that you think that could have helped support you in those, in that? Very good question. I, I mean, I think choosing partners and co-founders and, and team has also been a brutal learning over the years. You know, I, I'm a sole co-founder right now, but I, I had three co-founders at one point. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it. so we had one co-founder who was a kelp farmer who didn't want to build kelp farms for us. So she left before we launched kelp jerky. We had a chef who was an equal partner in the business, which was a mistake because he was also running multiple restaurants and just like couldn't give the company the time that the other teammates could. And then my other co-founder who was overseeing ops and finance completely burned out a year ago, like actually like a month after I had a baby, he decided to leave, which was like, yikes, really classy. But it was better in the end because I think I've, since we've been able to raise money, we've hired like amazing experts in whatever their fields are. Mm -hmm. I think to answer your question, if I could do it all again, I would have spent a lot of time going after people who had done it again and again before. The founding team, as it was back then in 2017, were all first-time CPGers. And I think I would have just spent, yeah, a lot more time securing a co-founder or COO or someone who had been at like three or four different CPG companies and just knew all the mistakes that were heading our way and, and how to avoid at least some of them. Yeah. Absolutely. Or even it sounds like having like a fractional COO or CFO early on to help with the numbers and the scale and all of those things um, yep. could help guide or an advisor. But someone with with real ex- industry experience, yeah, you know, I mean, definitely. my co-founder said he could do it all and no one can do it all. No one can even, you just, this game, this industry, CPG is so formulaic and and there's so many so many reasons why you see entrepreneurs starting their third or fourth CPG company because it's like so much easier the second and the third and the fourth time around because you know the brokers you know the way to scale a natural food business through which regions which markets like it's amazing and it makes anyone who's been in CPG and done it just yeah i think they've earned a badge for sure they've earned their stripes yeah <laughs> and how have you grown personally or professionally as a leader I used to have the outlook that everyone kind of needs to be a self-starter and and run on their own and be entrepreneurial in their own way. And I've worked with so many different kinds of employees and people over the years. And I've just, yeah, I've, I've learned to be a much better manager, setting just really clear expectations, real goals that can be met. You know, I think all that stuff sounds obvious. And I think it does, it does. And it doesn't because I agree with you. It's like, it does sound obvious, but if you've never done it before, you don't know what you're looking for. And I think it's really hard. There's no real framework for it unless you really dig, I guess. But there's a lot of founders that are starting their first companies and they make a lot of hiring mistakes. And that's mostly why, you know, and I think it's not until you have that experience that you realize how to properly maybe hire for the right people. Yep. Yeah. And the thing I've I've learned more than anything right now that I've always felt that I'm going to convey to my team tomorrow. So you're getting Inside as fresh scoop. as it gets in terms of, yeah, is just this concept of fighting for every hour. When you let someone get back to you and they take anywhere on their schedule, it takes a week. And then you have to get something that takes a week. And 
it is so easy to lose months and quarters. And when you are racing against a clock, which is called your runway Mm -hmm. to hit goals, you have to fight for every hour and you have to be dogged in your follow-ups and dogged in deadlines and expectations of people. And that's something that I've I've let lapse. And as a lot of founders, myself included, find ourselves looking at shorter and shorter runways with limited VC capital available, you start to realize how much time, how easy it is to lose time if you don't fight for every hour. Definitely. And I can imagine how busy the other side is, right? The distributors, the buyers, the everybody on that side. I mean, they're so busy. And if you're not on it, the likelihood of them getting back is probably kind of small. You got to be on it for them to probably feel like, oh, they're interested or to grab their attention or to keep them focused. So you have to work even harder, I think, to stay on top of the the mind. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I've, I've done in-person meetings with a bunch of our brokers recently, which has been hugely helpful. And you see the productivity go through the roof all because now they know there's a person on the other end of that email. Right. Exactly. It becomes more personal. Yeah. Interesting. So before we wrap up here, what is some final advice you have for entrepreneurs and what can we see next from Akuya? Fighting for every hour is definitely the most tough of my piece of advice for entrepreneurs right now. It's it's something that I think founders do well, but relaying that information to your team. And that also means saying no to things and focus more than anything too. You know, and knowing it's okay to tell someone, understand you want to get on a call about this, but I can't do it until Q2. And like punting things that are not in your first priority. And it's amazing what survival mode will help you with in terms of clarity of focus. And in terms of what's next for McCall, I alluded to it earlier, but we have partnered with Nickelodeon to do kids products. We're doing mini burgers, four to a pack. Amazing. I'm so excited for that (laughs) because I think I told you when I saw you at Expo West, I was like, my two-year-old loves your burgers. And it's so weird because he doesn't really eat veggie burgers. I try to give him all the different kinds, but he loves your kelp burger, which is kind of funny, right? That a two-year-old would like a seafood burger. Like it's a very interesting taste. It tastes really good and he loves it. And I'm so excited you're making them like kid-sized. You obviously have to do like a Little Mermaid situation collab, I feel like. That's that's gotta happen. I know, I know. We we love Nickelodeon, but the Disney <laughs> partnership in the future has definitely been on my mind. <laughs> I bet. That's awesome. Well, that sounds really exciting. Amazing. So congrats on everything. I'm so excited to see you grow this this awesome brand and business. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.